Sunday morning worship. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our own interests and our own pleasures to meet and to draw our hearts and minds into a, a fresh and clear focus of God. <clears throat> in the hymns of the church, there's a, a poem in there that someone pointed out to me that I would like to read. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. I would have used a simple definition of worship is the posture of the heart. And I believe that a lot of the, the purpose and the desire and the goal of the assembled body of Christ is to help keep that posture correct, to encourage one another in, in developing and, and maintaining that posture before God that is, I think, really a combination of gratitude and humility mixed together. Singing is often referenced as a time of worship, and rightly so. On the front of the hymns of the church is the phrase from the Psalms that says, come before His presence with singing. Well, coming before the presence of the Lord is, is an act of worship. And singing is what God says is what He would like to see as we do that. It's very fitting that we sing in our services, in our gatherings, and in our own private lives. But singing is one of the few activities that we can involve ourselves in that involve the whole of our being in the way that, that singing does. It, it, we involve our mind as we think about it. Now, we can sing mindlessly. That was referenced here this morning. We don't have to think about what we sing. But if we think about it, we involve our mind. Our will, we, we will to do, to involve our body in that response. And singing also affects our emotions. There's beauty in, in the tone, in the harmony. All these things coupled together affect our heart, but it's only one part of worship. Maybe going back a little bit to look a little bit more at worship, where it's referenced in Scripture and, and thinking first here in the Old Testament. What is worship? As we have gathered together, what are we doing? What is worship? Turn to Genesis 24. I'd like to read verse 7. I referenced this account last evening, but I'd like to just draw it here in our focus as we begin this message. Genesis 24, verse 7. Abraham speaking here to Eliezer, his servant. He said, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me and swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, 
and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. That was the, the parting blessing or encouragement that Abraham gave to Eliezer. He said, I trust the Lord. He will make your way prosperous as you go and fulfill what I've asked you to. And then going down to verse 11, this is where he, he had, Eliezer had said, I, I want this to happen, God. I'd like for you to work things out in this way. And then it, it says what happens. He made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening when the women even the time that the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the women, the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water, and let it come to pass. And then he goes on to tell what he desired, and he was led directly to who he was looking for. And his response in verse 26 and 7 says, And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. He had a heart that was full of gratitude and wonder and amazement that God led so directly in his experience. And he bowed himself down, bowed down his head, and worshipped the Lord. I'll reference another of other accounts. One I mentioned last evening was when Moses and Aaron came to the children of Israel in, captive, in, in bondage there. Not captivity, this is before that. When they were bound in Egypt, they were slaves and when they heard that God was going to save them, they fell down and worshipped. A few chapters later, they were looking at God. Moses was giving the instructions for the Passover, a very important event that was to happen. They had to follow the, the, the directives exactly to kill the lamb, the right lamb, the right way, to apply the blood over the door of, the, of their houses so that they would not be killed. In Exodus 12, verses 27 and 28, that ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. So that's what they were going to tell their children later. It says, and the people bowed their head and worshiped and the children of Israel went their way and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. We said that worship, true worship, involves sacrifice. And part of sacrifice or an element of sacrifice is obedience. And here, they took seriously what was going to take place. And as a result of their holding God in the place of high esteem... They did what he asked. Joshua, the leader there of, of toward the end of the wanderings in the wilderness, they came to Jericho. And Joshua was the commander of the army and he was surveying the situation. How should we do this? And he saw a man standing beside the city with a drawn sword. 
And Joshua went up to him. He had to figure out what's going on. He said, are you for us or against us? And the man said, the man, it appeared a man, said, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy foot from off thy, thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Can you imagine being there with Joshua? This great responsibility on his shoulders. And God appearing to him in that way. And it caused in him wonder and gratitude. And he fell down and worshipped. Job, if you know that story, all his possessions, all his children taken from him in a, in a single afternoon. And when he received the word, it says he rose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped. Worship isn't just a response when everything is going just like I think it should. Just when life is pleasant. But it's a heart posture, no matter if things are going according to my expectations or not. And the unifying thread in all these accounts is a physical posture, a bowing down, bowing down, humbling oneself. In some of these, it's gratitude. In others, it's just simply realizing that God is sovereign and I trust Him humbling oneself before God Almighty. The Hebrew word shalkal means to, to depress, to prostrate, bow down, crouch, fall down, humbly beseech, do reverence, make to stoop or worship. Humility is at the base of true worship. Now I have a question. Does a physical posture equal a spiritual condition? Then does it matter? If I tell you to praise the Lord, if I would give you that command right now to praise the Lord, but ask you to do it in a, in a quiet spiritual way, what will you do? Let's think here. I, I want you to praise the Lord, like involve yourself. You can pray. You can think. But I'd like you to all stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. And shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you. You may sit down. Did that feel like... Feel? A little bit more like praise than sitting there and thinking. Hallelujah, by the way, means... Praise the Lord. Now, you can say hallelujah and have no praise. But there's a, there's, all of you comes together in true worship. And as I consider this, how often kneeling down and bowing oneself is associated with worship, I think that it also is an internal and spiritual condition of humility. But I think there's a reason that we've had a tradition of kneeling for prayer. Both personally, but as a corporate body. 
And we knelt for prayer this morning. No, it doesn't make me holy to kneel for prayer. But it's a physical posture that helps to demonstrate my heart posture. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, it says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Their heart was turned up, their hands were lifted up, but they knew that they were nothing before God. And they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. As we move into the New Testament, the word for worship is proskuneia, which from the Strong's definition, it says it's a derivative of two words put together. So it's a compound word. And one of those is dog. And the other has the idea of coming close to, meaning to kiss, like a dog licking his master's hand. I heard that definition, had read that or heard that some time ago, and I, I thought about it frequently. To fawn or crouch to, that is literally or figuratively, literally or figuratively, perhaps physically or spiritually, to prostrate straight oneself. We have a dog at our house. It's not my dog, but it's our dog. And it seems like when I go outside, the dog comes running up to me. And it desires something. That dog wants to show me that it appreciates me a lot. And often there is some crouching. There is some maybe even rolling over saying, I think you're important. Would you please rub my belly? That dog has an opinion of me. I can speak pretty harshly and has a different opinion. But most of the time, she desires my approval and she comes in a humble way. Now that's the picture here of, of coming, God, I, I'm nothing before you, but I desire you. I desire you to love me, to, to meet my needs. You alone can. And in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, we can't go here and we can't not go here if we talk about worship, right? Because Jesus here is talking with a woman of Samaria, and she brings the question about worship. And here Jesus answers her and says, The hour cometh and now is when the true worship worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's not just something you do somewhere. It's not just a physical act. It involves faith and fact and spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What I want to point out here especially as well is that the Father seeketh such. God desires our worship. He alone is worthy. He desires it. Who is the story, the salvation story, really about? Do you think of salvation? What is salvation? Being redeemed. 
What or who is that about? Is it about me? Is it about Jesus? Is it about the Father? It takes all three for me to experience salvation. But I'd like us to think. Jesus came and He said, My my work is to do the will of my Father. And while me being saved feels good for me, God doesn't need me to be saved. If I desire salvation to escape hell, I'm going to live a fairly miserable life. I'm not going to be able to experience the joy of true worship. And that's a whole subject I'm not going to get too deep into, but just think about that. The Father seeketh such. Jesus came to point to the Father. A little sideline here, side note, and I don't know how critical it is, but I've heard as we pray, thinking about this in prayer, if we would go to John chapter 14 and at least chapter 16, Jesus gives us, says how to pray. And He says to ask the Father in my name. I think that's also indicative. Jesus said, all that I do, I want to point back to the Father. But when we pray, we pray to the Father. Yes, they're three in one, but we pray to the Father and we pray in the name of Jesus. It's only on His merit and because of His gift that we come. But our worship is to the Father. The Spirit will speak only of the Father, of Christ. He doesn't bring glory to Himself. It's all pointing to the, the, the Father as the head of the Trinity. But now, I'd like to, to look here a bit in beginning in Acts at the church. Acts chapter 12, first of all. I'm not going to be thorough in this study, but I'd like to just share with you, point out some things that I found as I as I sought to see and understand what are some aspects of, of worship in the body, the collected group of believers. And the first thing I'd like to, to point out here is that prayer was a, a vital part of the church. In Acts 12, 5, Peter had been arrested. It says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. The church was gathered. They were, their hearts were sorrowed, and yet they knew where to go for, for strength. If we would go back several chapters to Acts 4, there's a similar account. Peter and John had been in prison and had testified. And they were let go in verse 23. And they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. So that their own company here is a body of believers. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And what follows is a heart of gratitude, giving God 
honor for the creation, for His working in the past, for sending Jesus. In verse 29, it says, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. It was a collective group with a heart posture saying, God, you are awesome. What happened? When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. That thrills my heart. There was worship in the church and it was effective in bringing about, number one, a deeper, a more fullness and filling of the Holy Spirit and then effectiveness as they went out into the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Here we have some directives to the church there at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning of verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets speak, two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Last night, I didn't give it a, a, a single word heading, but as I thought about it later, the word prioritize or priority could be a, a word that would have kind of summed up the thoughts of that message. As I look at this, in this chapter and another passage we're going to read, the word participation. There's an involvement. It says that there's three, three goals in meeting together here. The first one, it says in verse 26, Let all things be done unto edifying. Edify to encourage, to build up and strengthen. Think construct or confirm. You think of an edifice. I don't know how many of us use that word very often anymore. But an edifice is a, a large, solid structure. And so the idea is, here is to build up. Let all things be done to edifying. May nothing be done that's tearing down and sowing discord or... Anything that is negative, it's here to build up as far as, as the goal and the intent. Not that there's nothing ever negative by calling out sin, but here 
Let all things be done to edifying. And notice here it says, if every one of you hath a psalm, a doctrine, a tongue, a revelation, there's, there's something that we're hearing from more than one person, which means that your heart is coming prepared. Think how you can come and build someone up. Do you come to church to get or to give? To receive or to, to be, to, to contribute? Another aspect, in verse 31, it says, For all may prophesy one by one that all may learn. So you do come to receive. You do come to learn. You, you come to hear to hear instruction, to hear differences of, of perspective and, and help we interpret the Scripture together. And also that all may be comforted. Comfort. To call near, to invite or invoke. It's very similar to the word exhort. And I like the idea here of, of calling. The word is parakaleo, and that is very similar to the, to the word parakletos, which is used as the comforter will come, the Holy Spirit. And he, he calls, he draws, he encourages, points us to the Father. And I think the tone of the church here is to be, understand what I say, but I'll just use the word comforters to each other. Not the comforter, but we are, to, we are tools of the Holy Spirit with some of the same calling to encourage one another, to call near, to exhort. As I looked at these three, I'll just give you a little, perhaps, illustration. Think of edifying, of building up. You may go to a brother and say, I am blessed by your willingness to serve as a Sunday school teacher. I appreciate the thought that you put into study and the things that you share. A little word of encouragement. Perhaps in the learning to be instructed in doctrine and truth. Sister, do you understand that modesty is much more than what you wear? It's a deportment and a demeanor. It's your attitude. That's part of the body coming together and, and instructing and learning. Or comfort. Brother, I sense you're struggling with an area of surrender in your life. Let's make time to sit down and talk about it and pray together. I want you to succeed. I want you to be victorious. I want your heart to worship. And I humbly come to help you. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 through 13. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers 
for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal of the church is to equip each other to serve God. And God's given us different roles. We do have different roles as we meet together. And some of us are more on the receiving end. Some of us are called to be more on the giving end. And yet, there's a participation. There's a willingness to hear and there's a willingness to give. If we turn over to Ephesians 5, just another aspect of the body and thinking of this this edifying and, and exhorting one another. Verse 21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another. That's not an individual out by himself. That's people together. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. A humble heart submitting to each other is part of the worship that happens in the body. It's part of what makes the church work. And it's part of what makes an Anabaptist church different from a lot of the Christendom that's around us. So we take these things to to mean what they say. We need to bring our opinions and our ideas, our interpretations together, and we, we submit one to another. There's another aspect of of the body working together. And if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't have much time to take to read, but I would like to go ahead and read verses 6 through 15. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Now there's a lot packed in these verses and I just want to point out that the encouragement here is to give. The reason or, or a, a response or what comes from that, in verse 12 it says, 
when we do this, it don't, not only supplies the want of the saints, it fulfills a physical need, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings to God. Worship flows out of humility and gratitude. And it enables others to worship when we meet the needs. And I think there's a lot of giving. There are places where Scripture references giving to help those that are not part of the body, that are not part of the church. But if you study it, you will find that most of the references are to helping brothers and sisters. It says, do good unto all men, especially those who are the household of faith. And it, and it, it encourages and enables worship. And I would like to point out here, though, I can't look at this passage without looking at verse 8 and just drawing your, your thoughts to it. In, refer- in light of verse 6, if you sow, what you sow, you reap. Now, we use that in many ways because it's true physically. I sow wheat seed, so I get wheat to harvest. I sow a little bit, and I might not get much. I sow the right amount, and I will have a big yield. But here we're told to give. And verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. How much grace? All grace. That ye having, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As we give, God will provide for us. We can't outgive God. You, you go study that verse later and you meditate on it. 2 Corinthians 9.8 That's what God wants to do in your life. And it's not selfish. He's doing it for His purposes. You can't outgive God. But now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is a, a passage, there's one phrase in here or verse that we often think of not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That's a gathering of the body, is it not? What's the context? Verses 19 through 27 of Hebrews 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. How many times is us an hour there. Did you catch that? Let us consider one another. Verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Some time ago I was studying this passage 
And that four jumped out at me. In verse 26, I believe that the assembled body is a critical means of encouraging to faithfulness. That's not saying that someone that's in prison and has no connection can't be faithful. But if you look here, it says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves, but exhorting one another. And that exhorting is very, as I said, that's, that's another translation of the word that was translated comfort. To call along, to, in, to encourage, to invite, to draw near alongside of, and to exhort. Bring words of life. Perhaps words of admonition. And it says following that, for if we sin willfully. And I see that as saying, if you come together, you exhort one another. That's the remedy for sinning willfully. And if we sin willfully, if we, the question was presented to to us earlier. Who's on the Lord's side? We come to a crossroads. It's one way or the other. I make choices. And the choice that I make today takes me down a road. God provides exit ramps and He provides another crossroads. And I think we have an obligation, a responsibility to our brothers and sisters. When we see them that they came to the crossroads and they took the wrong way, that we in love exhort. Because if they keep choosing, if I keep choosing to come to the crossroads and I keep taking Satan's way, I am on a path of sinning willfully and eventually I won't care. And eventually, if that is my choice and I'm going down that road, there remaineth no more sacrifice. The, sin, the, the sacrifice of Christ no longer applies to my life. Not saying the sacrifice isn't there and available, but I am no longer under the blood. That sacrifice is no longer applied to my life. True worship is the impetus to holiness. A proper view of God is what drives us to faithfulness and to being set apart. We encourage each other to have a proper view of God and a way of life that is worthy of being called His child. One other aspect that these passages did not mention that is in Romans and also in 1 Thessalonians, that is admonish. And admonish is a little stronger word. A number of other places it's translated warn. So you can exhort, you can edify, you can teach. But at some point... There's warning. There's that call of of admonishment. You need to change. There's a call for that in the body. I'd like to pivot just a bit and look at Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15 says... For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place 
with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the hearts of the contrite ones. Seeing God for who he is and seeing myself for who I am results in worship. But seeing God for who he is, the high, the lofty one that inhabits eternity, even his name is holy. In Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. So look at these two passages. They just point out the majesty, the glory, and the working of God. And I would say how we worship, how we view God is directly, how we view God directly impacts how we worship. I'm I'm running out of time, but I'd like to read a paragraph or two to help you think and then have a final few thoughts. The Apostle John in 1 John makes a practical statement about culture. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The things of the world are tangible expressions. The world is not just about abstract philosophies and ideas. It, its ideas take tangible forms, and each of these tangible things is connected to the world's beliefs and values. For example, the casual look we see in the world comes out of an existential philosophy that says, do your own thing. Life has no intrinsic meaning, so just you just have to be courageous and do your own thing to find your own meaning. And that to me sounded like what I talked about humanism. But out of that philosophy came the whole casual culture with its demand that you have to accept me for who I am. I must have freedom to do my own thing. People who take this approach insist that they are not worldly because after all, they are not wearing the world's stressed blue denim that sports rips and holes. But what they are wearing closely mimics the world's existential culture. They do not realize that the philosophy of the world is behind the things of the world and that those philosophies are not innocent. As the Apostle John warned, they give the nod to worldliness. I say that because... How we view God will define, in in effect, how we come together. We can worship God anywhere, in any condition, in any way we're dressed. But the assembly of the saints, how we dress and represent ourselves to each other, says a lot about what we think about God. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. But passages point out, ye are a temple builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. And I'd like us just to consider that. I was talking with someone not too long ago that was struggling with, with sin. And I, I, I don't know what made me think about this, and, and I don't know where it's going to go. But I just said, 
Do you have white shirts? For not not that you, not uh, just just some white shirts, not a t-shirt, but some sort of white shirt that you could wear. It won't make you holy, but do you know what? You know what God told the children of Israel to do? He told them in Numbers 15 that they were supposed to have, there's differences of, of, inter, of uh, translation, fringes, tassels, or borders. Him, I'm not sure exactly what it was. They were just to put something on their clothes that they would look at and they would remember the Lord. That ye may remember and do. Well, let me go back here. Verse 39 of Numbers 15 says, And it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look on it and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a-whoring, that ye may, excuse me, ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I, the Lord, am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And I just... I hadn't even thought of this passage directly when I thought of that. But I do things, set up things that we can can think of. The help physical does not make the spiritual, but sometimes we need physical reminders. But as we meet together, we meet together before a holy God. We come in an attitude of humility, of respect. And I would just, I, I would say to, to put this in a concise four statements that you might or might not remember and then have one closing passage. But I think about worship in the body. Dress up, show up, be here, dress up, show up, speak up, and listen up. Dress up, show up. Speak up and listen up. Why? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Our gathering is to point the world, not just the people, the principalities and powers in heavenly places see our lives, our interacting together, the way we submit, bless each other, and they confess the manifold wisdom of God. So that's my desire that we can take a few of these things and apply them to our, our hearts and lives as we think about meeting together, that we participate and part of that is giving, parts receiving, but we come together to worship. And that God can receive honor and glory through that worship. Let's kneel together for prayer.